If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to be moving along in the book of Genesis. As I said last week, we practice making our way through the Scriptures and unpacking them to see the timeless truths and principles that are found in God's Word. Temperatures on January 15th, 1919 were a balmy 40 degrees for a Boston winter. Commercial Street hummed with the sound of laborers and clopping horses and nearby elevated train platform was running. At Engine 31, the firehouse, a group of men were eating lunch and they were playing just a friendly game of cards. Down below a molasses tank, eight-year-old Antonio DiStacio and his sister Maria and also another boy named Pascal were gathering firewood for their families. It was around 12.40 p.m. when this horrendous metallic ripping sound occurred. Before residents had time to register what was happening, the recently refilled molasses tank ripped wide open and unleashed 2.3 million gallons of that dark brown sludge. A rumble. A hiss. Some say a boom and a swish, and the wave of molasses swept out. The Boston Post later wrote, A 15-foot wall of syrup cascaded over Commercial Street, heading down the street at 35 miles per hour, obliterating the people, the horses, the buildings, the electrical poles, anything in its path. Antonio, Maria, and Pascal were instantly swallowed up by the torrent. Only Antonio would survive this day. Almost as quickly as it had crashed, the molasses wave receded and revealed a half-mile swath of crushed buildings, crumbled bodies, and waist-deep muck. Over the next several days, rescue workers continued to sift through the, uh, the ruins, and the death toll would rise up to 21 dead and over 150 injured. Now, how did this happen, we ask ourselves? Well, the United States Industrial Alcohol said that this was an act of terrorism, that someone had placed dynamite onto the tank and intentionally blown it up. And there were terrorist activities around this time. But after five years of litigation, it was revealed that, indeed, this was not an act of terrorism. It was due to corrosion and negligence. In 1915, the company had hastily built the tank. It was World War I, and there was a need for industrial alcohol. And almost from the first moment that this tank had been constructed, the groans and and the peeling had started to occur. It was leaking molasses here and there, and at least one employee warned that it was structurally unsound, yet they just recalked it and then really did nothing from there. In fact, by 1919, the neighborhood had grown accustomed to hearing the rumbles and metallic creaks emanating from the tank, never suspecting that a wave of terror would come. This morning, we are going to look at the story of another flood. In fact, the flood. The Hebrew Bible calls this flood the Mabul, And it's only ever used of Noah's flood. When you see the word Mabul, it is talking about this great flood that Noah and his family endured and that succumbed the entire earth. 
And like that great flood, Noahic flood came as a result of corrosion. But in the case of this time, it was cultural corrosion. Genesis 6, 11, and 12 tells us that the earth was corrupt in God's eyes. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, Behold, I will destroy them uh, with the earth. So as you're following along in this Genesis story, we see that God created the world with his word. God's word is the glue of creation. And now, because of corruption, God would unglue the world. It's interesting when you look at that word for corruption and then the word for destruction, it actually has the same Hebrew root. The idea is similar to what happened to United States industrial. The pre-flood generation, their corrupt behavior would lead to their own destruction, is what we see here in the text. Now, when we think about something as well known as Noah's flood, a lot of questions come to mind. A lot of questions. People are analyzing it. They're wondering how did the flood cover the earth? How did Noah get the animals onto the ark? How did they all fit? How in the world would you feed that many animals? How do you fit the larger animals onto the ark? How did the pairs repopulate the planet and, and create the biodiversity and genetic variation that we see in the world? And for crying out loud, the biggest question is how in the world did Noah get rid of all that poop? I mean, legitimate questions. And I'll try to answer some of these along the way. I can't answer all of your questions. And I'll leave the poop conundrum to your own imagination. It's true. Genesis 6 through 9 raises a lot of questions. But don't get stuck in the questions. Sometimes we get stuck in the questions and we miss the story and what it's all about. We're analyzing the trees when really there's this beautiful forest before us. The emphasis of this story is on the man God chose to save in his life of obedience. And that points us, then, to God being a God of grace and Noah being a recipient of grace in responding to that grace. And that, indeed, is the big theme of the entire Bible. God dispenses his grace through Jesus. We are recipients of that grace and we were to respond to the grace. The storyline never deviates as you make your way through. So let's pick up the story. We'll look at verses 9 through 12, and we're going to take a look at Noah, a man transformed by grace. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh and corrupted, had corrupted their way on the earth. Let's stop there. Now, when you read through the Bible stories and you hear a, a phrase like, Noah was a righteous man, uh, some Bible teaching can tend to fall into an error which is called moralism. Moralism is where you teach a, a biblical story and it becomes a nice moral story. Uh, we elevate figures like Noah up to hero status. So I could be preaching this sermon to you and say things about Noah. Well, that Noah, he was a sure good guy. I mean, he never cheated on his taxes. He never yelled at his wife. He never would have looked at internet pornography. No, you need to be more moral because Noah was more moral. 
Well, if you've elevated Noah up to hero status, your hopes and dreams are going to be shattered in Genesis chapter 9. Because there he's drunk and naked. (laughs) Why doesn't that make it into the Sunday school lessons? (laughs) No, we come to find out that Noah is a guy just like you and me. A sinner in desperate need of grace. So the Bible doesn't tell us about Noah to raise the bar of human morality. No, the Bible is clear about our abilities to please God. We can't. We noted last week that Noah had found favor with the Lord. The word favor is the word grace. So here's a biblical principle for you. The grace of God always comes before anything else. Noah did not find grace because he was righteous. He was righteous because he had found grace. Here's another important principle. Grace changes you. It grabs hold of the heart and it changes it. You become the kind of person that God is pleased with because of his grace. You see, another error that can occur in the preaching of the Bible is the error of cheap grace. Cheap grace is non-transformative grace. It's the kind of grace that does nothing to you. It's the belief that a person can hear the message of Jesus, respond to it in faith, and yet be totally unaffected by that message. It's a feel-good kind of grace. But it doesn't do anything for you. Now, what do you call a, a medication that you take? It does nothing medically for your symptoms, but makes you think that you're better A placebo. Cheap grace is a placebo. Real grace is the medicine that the human heart needs. So notice what is said about Noah in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He was transformed by grace. Now let's talk a little bit about what does it mean to be righteous and blameless. To be righteous means that you gladly conform to God's standards. It's not this kind of back and forth argument with God's standards. I'm not picking and choosing individual commands in the Bible that I would like to follow while discarding other ones that I really wouldn't want to follow. No, friends, we have to understand that God's righteousness is meant to be conformed to by you and me. Often, we tend to want to conform to the standards of the world. But notice this in the text. Noah and his family are the only ones who avoid judgment. Sometimes it is incredibly unpopular to be righteous. What happens when we conform to the current cultural trends? Well, it tends to be a a very dangerous way to live. In culture, right and wrong are tossed about on the waves of popular mood and indifference. Notice that Noah chose not to ride that wave. He looked at God's righteous standards as ultimate and said that those will stabilize my life if I follow his way. Blameless. Now when I hear that word blameless, uh, my ear wants to insert the word perfect. But that's not what blameless means. That can't be true, right? Genesis 9. Go read that one later if you want to. No, blameless means moral integrity. Noah was the same guy in public as he was at home. 
Blamelessness has to do with who you are when no one is looking and the reputation that you acquire with outsiders because you're consistent in the way that you conduct your life. Arthur Friedman once said, men of genius are admired, men of wealth are envied, men of power are feared, but only men of character are trusted. Most importantly, Noah said that he had walked with God, and we covered this idea in Exodus, uh, Genesis chapter 5 when we looked at Enoch. So if you want to hear more on that, go back and listen to that sermon. But notice that he spent time with God. He was heading where God was heading, and he allowed the grace of God to continue to change him. And what was the outcome of this lifestyle? Well, I think something very important is found in verse 10. It tells us that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. As you make your way forward into the New Testament, uh, Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, I want you to imagine this, okay? You're going about in the world, and you're telling everybody about God and how you need to come and know God. And Noah has no one trust God. I mean, talk about a hard preaching ministry, right? He's sharing about God all the time. No one comes to faith. Well, that's not exactly true. His three boys did. I think there's an important biblical principle here. The Bible tells us that a father and mother's spiritual influence on a child is immeasurable. And survey after survey reflects the biblical reality. I've had the privilege of walking with family members at the time that they've lost a parent in life. And I'll tell you the reoccurring theme as they're reflecting on the life of their parent was their faith. It keeps coming up. Even if a child is not walking with God, even if they haven't set foot in church in years, as they're reflecting on what struck them about their mom or dad, it had to do with their faith, which causes me to sit back and sometimes say, well, connect the dots. Aren't you seeing it right now? You value them because they knew God and walked with God. An involved parent is the most influential person in a child's life. The most. Maybe you ask the question because your child's not walking with God today and you're saying, where did I go wrong? Well, if you lived out the grace of Jesus Christ in front of them, you did nothing wrong. They grew up. They made a decision. They're making their adult choices. And I guarantee you that right now, even as we speak, your faith life is challenging them. And this serves as also an encouragement to those of us who are parents of kids right now to not get distracted, to not let schedule and life pressure take our eye off of the prize. There is always going to be something that will compete with investing spiritually in our children. But remember, the most significant thing that you can pass on to that precious child of yours is not a superior education. It's not an active sports life. It's not private lessons on the piano. It's not even a good vacation. Those things are wonderful things. Don't hear me minimizing those things. If it's in, within your means to take care of those things, God bless you. That's a wonderful thing. But the most significant thing you can pass on is a vibrant faith walk with God. 
that will bless them. That will serve them far better than anything else. So the question is, well, how do I pass that along? And as we look at Noah, we see that he gladly conformed to God's standards. He was the same man both in public and at home, and he had daily fellowship with God, and his boys saw it. That's what the Bible's telling us. All right, let's move on in the text. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 now and the building of the ark, the specifications for it. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower second and third decks for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth, destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, this ark is an incredible undertaking. It is an incredible feat of construction. The scale of the project, if you consider the fact that Noah probably had rudimentary tools and um, that it may have only been he and his family members building this thing, is mind-boggling. To put it in modern terms, the ark would have been 450 feet in length, 70 feet, 75 feet in width, and 45 feet high. So how long is that? Well, put two football fields together and you got about the length of the ark we get these calculations because the, the, the cubit in the Bible was most likely about 18 inches. So when you think about this, you can envision the length of um, uh, the Cuddy Sark. It's the world's largest boat. It's 212 feet, okay? The Ark is 238 feet longer than that. The modern metal boat equivalent would be something like the Princess of Orient, a modern vessel that carries an incredible amount of people to good places. The ark also would have been very stable in its design and how it was built. And it would have had an incredible amount of carrying capacity. It's estimated, if you take these conservative dimensions that I've just offered, that this three-story ark would have had the carrying capacity of 569 two-deck railroad cars. On one of those cars, you could fit comfortably 240 sheep, so you multiply that out, and now you have 120,000 sheep, and that's a lot of sheep, isn't it? A lot of sheep. Would that be enough to carry these animals? Well, yes, when we realize that, one, not every species had to be on the ark. Two, large animals did not have to be adults. You didn't have to have an adult elephant. It could have been a baby elephant. And three, kinds in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean species. It could mean something more like the genus level or the family level. Even if you're a non-evolutionary scientist, we are very comfortable with the idea of significant variation happening at the genus and family level. So we just don't see like one kind becoming another kind, but we could see deviation from there. So if this is correct, then Noah may have only needed to fit uh, 16,000 land animals and birds on the ark. And when they left the ark, that would have produced the biodiversity that we see in the world today. If it was just the species level, 
Well, then it would, uh, one scholar suggests that only 35,000 to 70,000 species would have been present. So regardless, the math seems to work. If these specifications are right, 50% of the ark is carrying animals. 50% would have been left for people, food, water, and other provisions for one year's time. But again, you're still stuck on the poop question. So I'm just going to wager a guess here. Maybe they built the ark kind of like a chicken coop. You know the old saying, the poop. You can finish it from there. But here is the bigger question. How in the world did Noah bang in there and do this? I mean, just think about it. We're talking about a building project that some scholars believe took the better part of a century to complete. We're talking about a building project in the middle of land and Noah might never have seen rain before and God's eventually going to produce this worldwide flood. Everything in you and everyone around you is saying, that's crazy. Crazy old Noah would have been the phrase going around How did he keep building? Look with me at verses 18 to 22 and we'll see. And I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kind, the animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. And also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. The most significant verse in Genesis chapter 6 is verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you. It's the first time in the Bible that this theologically significant word is used. We noted back in Genesis chapter 2 that covenant language was used when God was establishing his relationship with Adam. And we also noted that covenant is the glue of relationship. It's a binding agreement. You cannot have a relationship without some form of a covenant. And so God is committing to relationship with Noah in this text. I think it's also significant to note that you can think of a covenant as a promise. People of faith believe in the promises of God. What does that mean? How does that work out? How does God make these promises to us and how do we receive them? Well, let's note three things about these covenant promises. The first thing we'll note is that God is the initiator of his promises. This is no two-way deal here. It's a one-way deal because God doesn't need anything from us. So the entirety of this promise rests on the character of God. And I gotta tell you, I'm really thankful for that. Because I know how you guys keep your promises, and you know how I keep my promises. I I tend to promise things that I can't write the check for, or make the cash for. I can write the check. I can't complete it, though. Sometimes I make a promise, and I just forget that I had made the promise. Other times, well, let's just be honest. Maybe I'm not being honest when I say it. But thank God that God's not like that. God is always 
a God who keeps his promises. And if the promises don't rest on me and it rests on God, then I need to know what God's like and what is he like. Well, Malachi 3.6 tells us, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So if he was a God that was given to sudden change, how could I know that he would come through with his promises? But he doesn't change. Which means that God's promises are secondly eternal. They never change. He never forgets them. How did Noah know that God was a promise-keeping God? Well, verse 9 tells us he walked with God. When you walk with God, you grow increasingly aware of God's character and his goodness. You learn to trust him. He's no longer that distant stranger. He's your heavenly father. It makes me think of a story that James Boyce Montgomery tells of a woman in his high school years that he met while he was traveling in the French countryside. It's kind of funny how this world is such a small world. Um, He was the senior pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and this woman was led to Christ by Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was also the senior pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Well, Barnhouse was there. He shared the gospel with her. She trusted Christ, and as they were discipling her, he showed them the Barnhouse family box of promises. You see, they would take a box and roll up 200 scriptures with promises from God. And you know how life gets. It gets tumultuous. It sometimes feels out of control. And they would go and open up that box and pull out a promise from God and it would comfort them. Well, she really grabbed hold of that. And she made herself a box. You fast forward the tape. We're in World War II now. War has swept the European continent. France was particularly affected The people struggled to live, and at times, particularly towards the end of the war, the food's running short, and there came a time where this woman and her family had absolutely no food other than a bag full of potato peelings from a restaurant. Her children were emaciated. They're crying for food. She's desperate. And in her most tragic moment, she remembered the promise box and turned to it, praying, Lord, I have such great need. Is there a promise here that is really for me? Show me, O Lord, what promise I can have in this time of famine and nakedness and peril and sword. And at the time, she began weeping uncontrollably and she reached for the promise box and blinded by her tears, she accidentally knocked the box over and the box just spilled out showering upon her and into her lap and falling all over the floor. In fact, there wasn't a single promise left in the box. And it was then that she realized in a moment of great joy that the promises of God were beyond counting. And that indeed, she had already received her yes and amen because God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 How did this French woman come to this realization? She walked with God. She grew to know his character. She came to know Jesus. She followed him. 
This is what will hold you up in your time of need. This is what's going to cause you to press forward even when it doesn't seem rational. This is why Noah obeyed an irrational command. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 5. Same thing. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 9, Noah entered the ark as God had commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 16, same point. What is the person like that God saves? She believes in the promises of God. She acts on the promises of God. Hebrews eleven seven 7 explains, it is by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about the things that had never happened before. For by faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, the third thing we see here is that we must claim the promises of God by faith. Do you think it was convenient to build that ark? Do you think that Noah ever questioned himself? I wondered if he was ever out in the, in the forest, chopping down a tree, sweating, back hurting, saying, what in the world am I doing right now? I wonder if people ever stood around that ark and mocked him. I wonder if Ham and Shem and Japheth ever said, Dad, what's going on here? We've been at this for 50 years. What's the point? But he kept building. Why? Because he believed in the promises of God by faith. He knew that building this ark would save his family. Let's continue in the story, and we're going to take a look at this universal flood. Uh, Verses 15 through 24, we'll take a look at. The Bible continues to tell us that they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath uh, of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Noah was saved by the grace of God. He believed God. He built that ark. He stepped onto the ark. He was saved from the flood. It must have been an incredibly bittersweet time. On one hand, your faith's vindicated. You believed God. You were saved. Your family was saved. On the other hand, everything you've ever known, every name you've ever known is now wiped out. Make no mistake about it. This flood, as the Bible presents it, was universal It was apocalyptic in scale, it was world-ending, and it was supernatural because it was from God. 
You would think that something so devastating would have left a deep imprint on the psyche of humanity. Noah and his boys would have left that ark and they would have told their children and their children would have passed it on to their children and on and on it would go. If something incredible like this, of this magnitude had taken place in time and space, well, you would expect to find great stories about a great flood all over the world. And in fact, you do. When you look at the, geo, uh, the global distribution of flood stories, it's breathtaking. We find flood stories in the Middle East and Africa, the Pacific Islands, the Far East and Europe and Asia, in Hellenic cultures, in North American tribes, Central American tribes, South American tribes. These traditions vary but also contain a lot of agreement. 70% talk about a survival that is due to a boat. 95% say that the sole catastrophe was a flood. 66% the disaster due to man's moral failure. 67% animals are saved. 57% the survivors end up on a mountain. I mean, I find the weight of this evidence to be staggering. At some point... In the distant past, this planet endured a flood of apocalyptic proportions. And here's the sober reality. It was brought about by God. Now we're thinking to ourselves, though, well, okay, so maybe this did happen. Maybe there was a flood that succumbed the entire earth. That's interesting, but how does that impact me today? I think that there are three very important spiritual lessons that we can derive from the flood. In fact, the shape of Christian theology rests on the fact that a flood did happen because we're looking for another day like this day. Look at these three principles. Principle one is that God still judges human sin. You see, the flood stands as a stark reminder that no one gets away with sin forever. It was the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who put it like this, the arm of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. God said in Genesis 6-3, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. And as we look at the story of Genesis play out and we see that everything's becoming unglued, we'll see that it becomes unglued again, even after Noah leaves the ark which means that we're still sinners, which means that we're still standing outside of the realm of God's protection. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the consequence of that? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So how do I be made right with God? Well, right now I have a big problem, don't I? Second principle is that judgment will come when Jesus returns. So if you're familiar with that Christian theology, the, the Bible tells us that Jesus' second coming will be analogous to this flood. His first coming was about salvation. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. His second coming will be to bring about worldwide judgment. Jesus explains himself in Matthew 24 that his coming will be like the days of Noah. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and, and giving in to marry. It, it was business as usual. People were just going about and doing life. No one felt any threat or concern. Uh, it, it might have seemed to many like this flood just kind of came about. 
But did it just come about? No. There was the prophetic preaching of the word of God. Noah preached for 120 years. Enoch before him, Methuselah. People might have thought to themselves, well, Enoch preached this message and crazy old Methuselah. I mean, that guy lost it about 100 years ago. But then again, they had heard this preaching. They thought that it was never going to come. And it came. Make no mistake about it. At some point, people will be going about business as usual and Jesus will return. For Noah's generation, the only determination between salvation and utter destruction had to do with location. You were either found on the ark or you were off the ark. So the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is spiritually speaking, how do I find myself on the ark? Or better asked, who is the ark? The Bible tells us that Jesus is greater than the ark. Jesus is the greater ark. He's the one that brings about true salvation. Uh, He's the one that will provide real escape from the final judgment. Why? Because Jesus is the better provision of God. Noah got onto that ark. He was saved from the flood, but he still left that ark a sinner. When I trust in Jesus Christ, he makes my sinful condition right with God. Because he lived the life I couldn't live. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose again to new life and he has promised that he will perfect me when he returns. He is the only door to God. Just as the ark only had one door, so Jesus is the only way to access God. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He later on says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus will save everyone who comes to him. He said that all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He is our place of total security. In in Noah's time, those animals and those people who resided on the ark were safe. They were in the total security of God's protection. Let the waves come. Let the water rise. Let let it rain down for 40 days. Let, Let them come up for another 150 days. It doesn't matter. They were in God's place of protection. The Bible tells us that no sheep will be removed from Jesus' hand. A person who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is not only saved for the moment, they are eternally secure in him. Friends, One question remains. Have you come into the ark? I'm not talking about your religion or the good things that you're doing or your charitable donations. I don't care how often you attend church, uh, whether or not you've been baptized. Those things are life preservers when it comes to my eternal destiny. Jesus is the ark. So the question that I have to ask myself is if Christ is the ark, Have I put my faith in Jesus? Am I relying exclusively on Him for my salvation? Have you trusted Him or are you clinging to something else? I'm afraid that some of us here are doggy paddling right now in this life. We're not on the ark. We think that we're doing just fine spiritually. But i got to tell you, I don't care how strong of a swimmer you are, how hard you work, 
If you were to try to swim from here, Cape Cod, to England, you'd never make it. And the spiritual gulf between me and God is bigger than that. If you want to be right with God, you must be in the ark. Jesus is the ark. He is the only one who can save you from the sins. He is the only one who can rescue you from the judgment to come. Have you trusted him? And if you haven't, run to him today. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Run to him. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?